Last year I got a letter from a very important person. Andrew G. Brown, QPM. Chief Constable of Grampian Police. Dated the 4th of June. Dear Sir, Madam, I have reason to believe that you have committed a fixed penalty offence at 11.43 on the 22nd of May 2003 at Stonehaven Road, Aberdeen, near Cangorn Road, Aberdeen District. You did drive a motor vehicle, namely T160 RKS Ford Mondeo LX Auto, at a speed of 51 miles per hour, speeding in a 40 miles per hour speed limit, and did exceed the statutory speed limit. And I offer you an alternative to prosecution, the payment of £60 and three penalty points. I was guilty. And surprised. And felt guilty. And I got my diary out and checked. And sure enough, that day I was visiting my daughter, collecting her from university in Aberdeen. And I checked the map and found the road. And I know the hill going into Aberdeen. And I never saw the 40 limit. But, and I checked with the policeman of the congregation, there was no way I could get off the hook. There was no way of saying to them, Dear sir, I am the pastor of Charlotte Baptist Chapel. There was no point in writing them and saying, I didn't see the sign, I generally keep the law. There was no point in saying to them, I have driven for over 30 years and never been done for anything. I was guilty. Under the law. I was not above the law, but under the law of the land. And I had to pay up. And to my embarrassment, I have three points on my license, and it will take, I think, several years before they finally remove it. Now, the question I want to pose this evening is, all of us are under the law of the land as far as traffic and everything else goes. Are we under this law that we read together? Are we under the Ten Commandments? Are they, as people suggest, as John Easton, our BBC cameraman, and our student and youth pastor Colin discovered on Princess Street this week when they went out with a camera. Most people think these laws have no relevance to them, that they're above this law. What about those of us who are Christians, who claim to be Christians? Are we under this law? It's in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant that God made with the people of Israel. Doesn't the New Testament say, you are not under law, you are under grace? So does that mean we can forget this and I can take a break for this series for the next ten weeks and you can do something else on Sunday evenings? Are we above the law? What I want to try and do, and this is a vast subject and I'm trying to compress a lot of information, so just stay with me if you can, because it's a very important subject because if you are under this law and you're breaking it, you're in trouble. If at the end of it you say, that's fine, the preacher told me, it doesn't apply to me, I'm okay, I can go and covet my neighbour's wife or steal, which are the only two that most people seem to know in, the, in Edinburgh anyway. It's very important to know. So what I want to do is three things. First of all, I want to look at the Ten Commandments and the people of Israel, because it was given to them and clearly they were under this law. Secondly, I want to look at the Ten Commandments and the Christian and their relevance to us. 
And thirdly and finally, and much more briefly, I want to look at the Ten Commandments in everyone, because maybe you're sitting here and saying, well, I'm not a Christian, it doesn't apply to me at all. And I've got friends who aren't Christians, it doesn't apply to them. So let's look at these three things together, all right? Try and stay with me, you'll find the outline on the screen, and I hope it will be helpful what we're going to think about this evening. First of all, then, the Ten Commandments of the people of Israel. I hope you've got the Bible in front of you in Exodus chapter 20. And you may need it for other references as well. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words. The Ten Commandments which follow are described as God's words, literally God's words. They're often represented in abbreviated form. They're sometimes called the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Decalogue is the Greek way of saying ten words, ten statements. This could have been the case with these commandments that the Lord gave to Moses. We discover if we read on, chapter 31, that God gave him these ten commandments on two tablets of stone. And they were inscribed by the finger of God, it says, stressing their permanence and importance. It is actually believed by most scholars that contrary to what most people think, the Ten Commandments were not given on two tablets of stone with five on each. Most, pe- most of the people who studied this say that the Ten Commandments were actually given on one stone tablet with two copies. Because when you made agreements in those days, both parties got a copy. They were carbon copies, if you like. Well, carbon stone copies anyway. And uh, one was for God, who was one party, the Lord, and the other one was for the people of Israel. And many people have pointed out that this, uh, the words that he used here and the kind of form that's used is very similar to ancient treaties from this period at this time. Treaties that were made between a king who conquered a nation and then imposed his laws on them. Uh, treaties that a God gave to his people. Now that shouldn't surprise us because God always speaks to people in their culture in a language that they understand. However, scholars have also pointed out that there are some remarkable differences between the Ten Commandments and any of these other contemporary codes. Let me mention two of the most important ones. Here's the first one, what we can call the context of covenant. What does that mean? Well, there are two places, in fact, in the Old Testament of our Bible where the Ten Commandments are listed. The first one is here in Exodus 20. The people of Israel have just come out of Egypt. They're three months on their journey from Egypt and slavery to the promised land. And they come to this mountain and God gives this agreement. The Bible calls it a covenant. And Moses goes on the mountain and this law is a summary of God's demands. The second place it's found is in Deuteronomy. That's that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The fifth book along. And this is 40 years on, on the edge of the promised land. Moses is about to leave them, and he renews the covenant with the people. It's the renewal of the covenant. And in both cases, the words are almost identical in both. They're prefaced by these words. Look at verse 2. The motivation for obedience. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, the reason for this law... The basis of it is an intimate and personal relationship between the Lord and these people. Now, the chief constable did not write to me from Aberdeen and say, Dear sir, I am your friend. Please don't speed in a built-up area. No, the law is impersonal, isn't it? It's kind of abstract. There's nothing personal about it. But Israel says, the Lord says to Israel... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. 
I rescued you. I intervened in your life personally. And it's because of that that I ask you to live in a way that pleases me. In his book, A Faith to Live, by Professor Donald McLeod of the Free Church College, he writes, the great thing is that God did not take them out of the promised land because they kept the Ten Commandments. They were to keep the Ten Commandments because God took them out. That's the first thing. This is not some impersonal code imposed from on high. This is God in relationship with his people. The maker's instructions. A second distinctive feature about this is the relationship between what you could call social and religious behavior. The first four commandments, or some people think the fifth is included here, deal with our relationship with God. His people's relationship with God. Love for God. The others, six to ten, deal with our relationships with each other. And these two things are inseparably linked. In most laws in those days, there was religious law, and then there was civil law. And the two, never the twain, met. This is distinctive. God is saying, because you are in relationship with me, that then affects your relationship with other people. Inextricably linked, those two things. Do you remember, if you know the gospel story, do you remember when Jesus was speaking on one occasion and one of those legal experts stood up to try and trap him and he said, Teacher, uh, tell us, which is the greatest of all the laws in the Old Testament? And Jesus said, the first and greatest law is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. That's commandments one to four. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and all the prophets. Loving God and loving one another are the Ten Commandments, a summary of them. And the rest of the law of Moses that follows in those long books that you don't probably very often read, books like Leviticus, are all an outworking of that in practicality, in detail. And the Old Testament prophets call the people of Israel back to these foundational documents from which they frequently departed. Now, God's plan in choosing the people of Israel, you know the little rhyme, how out of God to choose the Jews. Why did he choose them? God said to them himself in Deuteronomy 7, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous or better than anybody else. I chose you because I loved you. And God chose this nation of Israel and he chose them as a model, if you like, a working model of what it's like to be in relationship with God as a people group, a nation. And his plan was, way back to Abraham, through whom he first made the covenant with a man called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And the reason God did this, he said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and your descendants, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. So God made this covenant, this agreement, and his plan was, with Israel, these are the maker's instructions for a happy nation. You follow them, and you'll be a light to the nations. Other people will look on and say, what? In biblical terms, this is a nation that is blessed by God. Why can't we adopt this for ourselves? Why can't we be like that? Why couldn't we have such a God like that? And the prophets still look forward to a day when all the nations of earth will stream to Jerusalem, as it were, because they see this wonderfully worked out. Now, unfortunately, tragically, the people of Israel failed to live up to their calling. Even when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, The people were at the bottom of the mountain, breaking the law, even before they'd got it. Great picture by Rembrandt of Moses in despair coming down and breaking the stone tablets when he discovered this. 
Now, although the Lord forgave them, although the Lord gave them new commandments and two new stone tablets to replace the ones that Moses broke, although the Lord graciously provided a way in which his people could be forgiven through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, God's forgiveness, the problem was far deeper and more fundamental. For the problem lay not just with their actions or even their attitude, the problem lay with their very nature. They had this propensity to go their own way, a propensity which all of us share. A deeper problem. Now, we're beginning to think about what is the purpose of the law? What does the law do? The first thing the law does is show us how we should live, but the second thing it shows us is that none of us live up to what it demands. In New Testament terms, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. So, what was needed was something far more radical. So the prophets in the Old Testament, as well as pointing out this failure, they looked forward and spoke of a day when God would do something fundamentally different and better for human beings. A radical solution promised. Uh, the best place this is mentioned in the Old Testament is the book of Jeremiah, which you may think is all about complaint and, you know, Jeremiah, this suffering prophet, but there, there's wonderful things in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord said through Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now here's the promise. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is the whole passage. Now, that's what the prophets promised. And all of these things wonderfully came to fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So now we turn to our second theme. The Ten Commandments and the people of Israel. What about the Ten Commandments and the Christian? Let's pause for a moment. If you ask most people who believe in some kind of life after death, heaven and hell, how do you qualify for heaven? Most people will answer, by doing your best. And should they know the Ten Commandments? By keeping the Ten Commandments or something like them. Few people would claim to be perfect or to have kept them perfectly, but they reckon somehow that God marks on a curve and that hopefully they're in the top half who qualify for heaven and not the bottom half and the alternative place. In total contrast, maybe you think that, I have to tell you, in total contrast, the Christian is someone who recognizes that he or she can never qualify for heaven by your own efforts. There is no way any of us, even the best of us, can keep God's law because God demands that we keep his law perfectly. Yes, I have 30 years of driving, I was going to say, without speeding. That's not true, but driving without being caught anyway. But <laughs> um, I try, I, I have to be honest, I try to keep the law, but don't talk to my family in too much detail about this. Um, 
But it's no good saying that, you see. I've broken the law. I'm guilty. They got it on camera, on video. Me and my car. A Christian recognizes it's impossible. In the words of our final hymn that we'll sing in a little while, um, written by a man called Augustus M. Toplady a long time ago, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Now notice what he's saying. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's just something that religious people find very hard to admit, ranging from Paul the Pharisee in the first century to Martin Luther the monk in the 16th century and many others since. The law shows us how to live. It is essentially good. It is holy because it reflects God's character. But it condemns us because we cannot keep it. So we look in the law, it's like a mirror. And we see that we're not clean. So what does it do? It drives us to seek soap. It drives us to seek salvation somewhere else, apart from ourselves. It declares us guilty before God. The Apostle Paul describes the law using a Greek word. He says, the law is our pedagogue. The old translation says, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to God. Galatians 3.24. By showing us that we need a better solution. And God sent his son into the world. If you never heard this, this is great news. If you have, it should still be great, exciting news for you. God sent his son into our world, fully human as we are, tempted in every way as we are, as we saw this morning, as we looked at Mark's gospel, yet without sin. Jesus was the only human being who kept God's law absolutely perfectly, never failed once. So having no sin of his own, he was able to bear our sin and guilt, take the punishment we deserve, bear God's just wrath against sin and sinners, dying in our place on a cross. Now through faith in him, as our substitute, we can be put right with God. For God looks not at us, but at him. Some of our great hymns, we sang that lovely hymn this morning. Because the sinless Saviour died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So the Christian is also able to sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. So we are put right with God, not through keeping the law, which is an impossibility, but through faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul says, Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've not really come to our question. Now let's come to our question. If you're a Christian, if you've been put right with God through faith in Christ, what is your relationship then to this old law? These Ten Commandments. While most of us would understand that the sacrificial laws in the book of Moses, the law of Moses, are done away with because of Christ's death, and the civil laws applied to Israel at that point in history, what about God's moral laws summarized in the Ten Commandments? Are we not free from the law? Paul writes. Are we not under law, but under grace? Does that mean we can forget the Ten Commandments? Well, as Paul so often says, by no means, God forbid. Why not? First of all, think about what Jesus said about the law and how his coming affected the law of Moses. This is stated most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 
chapter 5. Listen very carefully, it's very important. Jesus said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will any, by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only did Jesus not say that he'd come to abolish the law, he said, I've come to fulfill the law. And that if you're going to be my followers, your righteousness, your observance of what God expects, must exceed that of the teachers of the law. Those religious experts, the Pharisees, who were famed for their adherence to the law of Moses. So what does he mean? Does this not contradict everything we've said about becoming a Christian? Not at all, because what Jesus is talking about here is not becoming a Christian, but being a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount is about the way the followers of Jesus are to live. And rather than giving them some new ethic, free of any law, he said he'd come to fulfill the law. The word fulfill there can mean to fill with meaning. And if you go on and read in the Ten Commandments, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if anyone is angry with his brother, he's guilty of murder. You've heard the law said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, says Jesus, whoever looks at a woman with lust in her heart is guilty of adultery. Now, this is filling the law with much more meaning. The scribes and the Pharisees, they reduced it to lots of nitpicking little rules, 600 out of them and pride of themselves and keeping up, Jesus goes behind it and he fills it with meaning. He goes to motive. talks about the Sabbath. We'll come to this later on. Jesus was criticized again and again for what they said was breaking the Sabbath. Doing things on Saturday that they said should not be done. But Jesus goes behind that. We'll see that in our series. So how is this possible, you might ask? And you must ask if you've followed this far. How can we possibly do that? Just as you cannot be justified, put right with God, by human effort, by works, the Bible calls it, neither can you be sanctified, made holy, live in a right way before God, by human effort. We need help to live this kind of life, and God has provided it. Those Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. God writes his law on our hearts. He changes our nature. He gives us his spirit. Why does God give people his Holy Spirit? Well, to make us holy. Why else? To make us like Christ. To make us different, radically different from within. We live in a way that pleases God, not by human effort, but by the spirit. So you say, well, what does please God? What kind of life pleases him? What does it look like? It looks like the Ten Commandments. In their fullest meaning. Fulfilled as God's law is written in our hearts, engraved in our nature. I'll be recommending various books on the Ten Commandments. Here's a very readable one by our, one of our former assistant pastors, Alistair Begg. Alistair writes, The believer has been changed inwardly, given a new heart, the same shape as the law of God. It is a perfect fit. 
There is nothing uncomfortable or irksome about it. Now, we cannot take pride in this. It's God's gift to us, but we cooperate with it by allowing His Spirit to work within us, by living not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As He begins to make us holy like God, as He begins to fulfill His work, which is always intended that His people should be light. You are the light of the world, says Jesus. You're the salt of the earth. You'll be seen as different. And we keep God's commandments because we love him and want to please him. You see, the Ten Commandments are very unpopular. People say, people don't want laws today. They don't want to be commanded. They want to be given choices. Well, we have a choice, either to keep God's law or to disobey it. But keeping God's commands is not a burden, but a delight. Not a duty, but a delight. Listen, love and law are not mutually contradictory. Remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. And if you remain in my love, you'll keep my commands. John 15, 14, 15, 15, 10. Now, one of the sure signs that you are a Christian is that you love God's law. I've been thinking a lot about this recently. You read the Old Testament. Read something like Psalm 119. And it's all about the psalmist saying, how I love God's law. It's better than, sweeter than honey. It's just wonderful. I just delight in God's commands. And I have to be honest with you, friends, I cannot imagine many Christians saying that today. That they love God's law. But if you think about it, it's back to relationship. Think of a young man. All right. Maybe in Charlotte Chapel, though this isn't anybody in Charlotte Chapel, but it's happened. Think of a young man, and suddenly his friends notice, his mates, that after work he stops going out with them like he usually does. Immediately work is finished, and have a good time with them. And after a couple of weeks of this, one of them says to him, you've not been out with us recently, what's going on? And he says, well actually, I've met this girl. And every day after work, she works way across the other side of Edinburgh. But I drive along in my car to meet her out of work and then take her back to her home so I can spend a few minutes with her every day. Now the person who says to him, what a drag, why on earth do you want to do that, is not in love and has never been in love. He does it out of love. Now when you become a Christian, when God puts his spirit in your heart, one of the sure signs is you begin to say to yourself, What does God want me to do? What can I do today that will really please God? Instead we say, oh, well, God's got all these laws and, you know, it'd be great to do some of these things, but I can't do them because God doesn't want me to do them and, uh, you know, he'll punish me if I don't do them and we've got it all the wrong way around. If we love God, we keep his commands. Now, there are twin pitfalls that the Christian has to avoid in this. It's not an easy balance. First of all, you need to avoid what what is called legalism. That is the idea that we're saved by grace and then sanctified by works. The New Testament letters to the Galatian church, churches in the Roman province of Galatia, is written to address this particular problem. The Apostle Paul says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit... Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Galatians 3 verse 3. But the opposite to this is license. Or there's a long technical word that's used for this. I'll introduce it and you can forget it if you like. The Greek word for for law is nomos. 
And there's a word antinomianism, which means you're totally against the law. You just do your own thing. So Paul addresses this in the same letter. He says in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Moses. The Westminster Confession. Those of you who grew up and were catechized, which is not a bad thing. Wish we could reintroduce it, but I just don't think it would go today. It says, The Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Got that? Not easy language. Say it again. The Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. If you don't get that, here's a modern preacher's words. Stuart Briscoe. Do the Ten Commandments have any significance for us today? Of course they do. Not as a means of justification, but as a means of demonstrating that we have been justified. You're not under law, you're under grace. In order that, in the power of the Spirit, you might fulfill the righteousness of the law as outlined in the Ten Commandments. So then, rather than ignoring the Ten Commandments, we need to be reminded of them. Those of you who grew up in the Church of England, or know the prayer book well, will know what happens when you come to communion, at least one of the communion services. The minister reads out every one of all Ten Commandments, one by one. And afterwards, the congregation, after each one, the congregation says, Lord, have mercy upon us, and incline our hearts to keep this law. Lord, have mercy upon us. He says, you shall not steal. Lord, have mercy upon us, incline our hearts to keep your law, this law. You shall not commit adultery. Lord, have mercy upon us, and incline our hearts to keep this law. I think it's a good practice. It roots in reality the issues that we face day by day. So finally, and very briefly, for the answer ought to be obvious, the Ten Commandments and every one. I want to say that I believe the Ten Commandments are necessary for everyone in two respects. For our society and for our salvation. First of all, for our society. If you search on the internet, if you, if you look at the search engine and search for Ten Commandments, it's amazing what you find on there. And you'll discover there's a huge debate in the United States at the moment, in certain states, uh, in public buildings, they've got the Ten Commandments written on the wall. And secularists and atheists are saying this is totally inappropriate for a modern society. They need to be painted over, covered over, or removed completely. They're incompatible with a modern society, obsolete and negative. However, while nine out of ten contain a negative no, that doesn't make them unnecessary or even limiting. Just imagine for a moment that there were no speed restrictions anywhere on our roads at all. Well, there'd be chaos and danger and death and accidents. The restrictions, rather than limiting our freedom, create the freedom to travel safely, and that applies with all law. Freedom within constraints. So it is with the Ten Commandments. The only question you've got to ask is, we all need constraints, we all need laws. Are these the best laws? The Bible says these are the laws of the one true God. They're not obsolete, but absolute. Reflecting his unchanging character and standards. They are not the Ten Suggestions. They're the Ten Commandments. 
And I find it hard to believe that our society has improved as it's continued to decline and neglect the Ten Commandments. Some of you may want to argue that point. There's a second reason as well. Uh, The evangelist J. John, interesting guy, has travelled the country, Britain, speaking on the Ten Commandments, mostly to non-Christians in secular environments. And he comments, interestingly, there's a great interest in knowing about the Ten Commandments. And he thinks there are two reasons. One is what I've said, that our society seems to be declining and people realise they need to come back to something that is of eternal value and standard. But a second reason as well. He says that people recognise the truth of these in their conscience. That's what he says. I believe that these ancient rules are stamped like the embossed numerals on the watch dial onto the conscience of every man and woman. They are part of what we are as human beings and when we hear them, we recognise them in our innermost being. Uh, C.S. Lewis, much earlier, in his book, The Abolition of Man, suggests that there is evidence that these are universal truths in every culture, warped and obscured though they may have been by sin. The Ten Commandments are necessary for our society. Finally, they're necessary for our salvation. You see, unless I know what God demands, and that I'm guilty and will be punished unless I keep his laws or find forgiveness, I will never realise what a serious danger I'm in. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, as I discovered in Aberdeen last year. I didn't deliberately drive through the 40 mile an hour limit, thumbing my nose at the traffic camera. I just missed it. Now I know where it is. I slow down, particularly at that point. Now, only if you realise what a serious predicament you are in before God, will you seek God's forgiveness. If I just present the Christian faith as as another option to meet your felt needs, you will feel free to take it or leave it, or to find something you think is more attractive. But if I say, as the Apostle Paul did, preaching to Greek philosophers in Athens about the idolatry in their city, about what God demands, this is what he said. In the past, he says, God overlooks such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30-31. If you believe that, then it places the whole matter on a much more serious level. Maybe another Christian this evening. I have to tell you, you have broken God's laws. You are guilty before God as we all are. And maybe you never realised that. So if you have friends who are not Christians and you say, well, I'm not going to bring to the chapel on Sunday evening, it's all about taking man, so I think it's just negative. Listen, you're doing them a disservice. Because they need to hear that they have erred and strayed. They have left God's laws. And they're in mortal danger. And preaching the Ten Commandments shows people that they're guilty, but it then says to them, listen, I'm guilty, what can I do? Is there any way my points can be wiped off? The penalty paid. It drives people then to seek what God offers. In previous generations of Christian preachers of the gospel, they usually work to a model, an interesting model that you don't hear very often these days. 
They preached the law of God till people came in the conviction of sin and then they applied the gospel of Christ. The famous story about C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, on one occasion was preaching, down to preach in a church and the church was packed full and he was late arriving and his grandfather got in the pulpit and began to preach and he was well into his sermon and Spurgeon came in through the door, the crowd parted, he came up the steps and he said, where have you got to? Grandfather explained, he just took over at that point. He knew where he was. We need to hear about the commandments because they show us our need and they drive us to seek a saviour. So if you want a Christian this evening, I finish with this, as I do every week if I can, because I have an obligation. I did this morning. If you want a Christian, here's the bad news, you're in mortal danger. You're guilty before God. You face his eternal judgment and wrath and separation. That's the bad news. And you need to hear that because you'll never appreciate the good news or even see any need for it unless you understand that. Here's the good news. God has made a way by which your debt can be wiped out. Your guilt can be removed. Your sin can be forgiven. You need to turn from your sin and admit, Lord, I'm guilty. You've got me on the video camera. And put your faith in Christ while you can. Because there is a day coming when he will judge the world by this man, Christ Jesus. And until then, this is the day of opportunity. That is your hope. The good news is the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is good news. I hope it's your good news. And that Christ is your saviour and you're trusting in him alone. Because God doesn't mark on a curve. And your good works will never get you into heaven. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven. Let us in. Let's pray together.